The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So here's something worth sharing. Uh, Back in 1987, uh, Gary Larson, the creator of the comic The Far Side, uh, published a cartoon that showed uh, two chimpanzees uh, sitting on a uh, on a branch. One of them is supposed to be the nagging wife chimpanzee, the jealous wife chimpanzee, and she's picking a hair off of her husband chimpanzee's body, and she's saying, "Well, well, another blonde hair," conducting a little more quote research with that Jane Goodall tramp. And (laughs) apparently this made some people uh, angry. And it strikes me this is a good lesson uh, with a lot of what I've been saying here about creativity and the way that we believe we should or the way we actually do treat the people we respect and revere. Um, It's interesting that... uh, people were offended uh, for Jane Goodall on her behalf and were, I guess, angry at Gary Larson for, for, this, uh, for this cartoon. Uh, but Jane Goodall was not. Uh, she had a good laugh with it. And it strikes me that the people who looked at Jane Goodall as someone to revere or respect or uh, to turn into some kind of a symbol. The ones who saw Jane Goodall in all capital letters, the ones who uh, just saw her as uh, someone, uh, perhaps a rarefied heir, uh, those were the ones who were offended. Jane Goodall, who knew that she was not Jane Goodall in all capital letters, who knew that she was uh, not the person in her press releases, if you want to put it that way. Um, She knew that she could and that she should uh, be able to take a joke. And uh, that just seems worth mentioning here. Um, Another thing, I I posted earlier this week two interviews from the book called Gig, where uh, Americans around the year 1999 or 2000 talk about their jobs. And I came across uh, an interview with a chief executive officer who says things like, uh, the biggest satisfaction for me is not making the money. It's being able to develop and work with a team of good executives and then recognizing what you do, that what you do for the organization enhances value to your shareholders and I can't imagine making a statement like that. I'm not trying to say that I'm better than the CEO. Um, I'm not trying to look down on him. I'm trying to understand how a person actually says that the biggest satisfaction 
is being able to develop and work with a team of good executives and then recognizing that what you do for the organization enhances value to your shareholders. I don't know how you devote your life to that, but I suppose um, that's a problem of empathy uh, for me. But I was struck earlier on in the interview where he's talking about what he was doing that day. And he says, earlier today, I was interfacing with security analysts who are writing reports on the company. And I wondered what interfacing with security analysts means. Uh, does that just mean I was talking with them or I was collaborating with them? And it struck me that when I criticize uh, the teaching of literature these days as basically being drenched in theory and jargon, when I say things like, uh, that, that this bent of literary uh, studies makes sense because it is much easier to produce a piece of criticism than it is to produce an, an actual uh, work of art, a good poem or a good novel or a good story. What I realized when I read this chief executive officer saying I was interfacing with security analysts, um, I realized that now it's the uh, the people with cultural uh, studies degrees and the people with creative writing degrees who talk this way. It's not just the CEOs. And I, I suppose that is to me the great crime of what is going on. Um, I won't say all over the place because it's probably exaggerated. Uh, but just the idea that this is the way you talk to people and the way you talk about people, and it's the way you talk about what you do. Um, I don't blame the CEO for it because uh, his business is not language or the history of language or the history of expressing human experience and all of these things. Um, but that, that is the poet's uh, ancestry. Uh, that is the novelist and the storyteller's ancestry. It certainly doesn't have to be that way anymore. Um, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, writers out there who don't really see a point in that lineage um, in storytelling and uh, and the rest of it. But uh, But I had a moment of clarity there, seeing that this is what I mean when I criticize the way that uh, poets are taught and that later on how poets act and write and speak or the way novelists and essayists and short story writers and all of the rest do the same. And as someone later told me, uh, those are the people who become the early readers for the literary magazines. So you have to uh, just take a chance even submitting things these days because it's hard to imagine getting past them. And then in 10 or 20 years, or even earlier than that, uh, those are the people who will be the editors of these magazines. And so at some point, there will just be entire markets where uh, certain writers uh, just may not bother submitting anymore. And that strikes me as uh, a great shame, I suppose. Another lesson of late, I think tonight will just be some scattered bits. I can remember um, 
that the only reason I got into the Beatles at first was because I had just read Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter, and I wanted to listen to this music that Charles Manson, uh, according to the book, played for uh, his Manson family, his, his followers. And he, it was this music and these lyrics and these songs that he used to convince them that the Beatles were speaking to them and to Manson specifically and were encouraging them to start a race war that would eventually uh, consume America and that Manson and his followers would go to live underground in the desert and that when the race war was over, the remnants, the, uh, uh, the black people, as he said, who would be left, who would have apparently have killed all the white people in the country, um, they would have found Manson in the desert and they would have asked for his leadership. I wanted to hear, the, I wanted to hear the music that apparently uh, inspired all of this, uh, this nonsense, uh, this racist nonsense, and um, and so when I came to to listen to uh, Revolution Nine in high school with the knowledge of the use that it was put to by Manson and later by his followers. Uh, it terrified me. It scared the hell out of me in a very good way, like a like a good horror movie. Uh, but at the same time, uh, being raised Catholic and having the book of Revelation um, deep in my mind, I can also recall uh, just terrifying myself on purpose if there was a, a thunderstorm uh, blowing through. I can remember, uh, even in the, especially in the summertime, I would open the windows in my bedroom and turn off the lights and uh, put Revolution 9 on the CD player and just listen to it as the sky got dark and the rain rolled in. And uh, just last year, I realized that I wanted to play some music for my daughter in the car when we were going here and there. And I thought, why not play the Beatles? Um, it's fairly catchy. It's usually pretty happy. And um, these are songs that she could easily uh, just uh, get to know. And uh, I wouldn't feel bad about that. If I really wanted to introduce her to something, I would love to do Radiohead, but that they're not as catchy and they're doing something else. Um, the Beatles is something that you can, I think, introduce safely to a four-year-old. But then one day when we were driving home from the grocery store, uh, Revolution 9 came on my shuffle of favorite Beatles songs, and I wondered what to do. What should I do? Should I let it keep playing and just see what her reaction is? And then it was, what if this just scares the shit out of her like it did to me when I was a teenager? Um, I don't want her having a meltdown in the car, being terrified by this music. But at the same time, I remembered, well, it starts with uh, John Lennon saying, is it Lennon or is it, is it McCartney? I can't remember. One of them saying, number nine, number nine, number nine. So I thought, well, we're going over numbers lately. So uh, it can't hurt to just have her listen to the beginning of it and then just see what happens. And 
the funniest thing in the world happened. Uh, she heard number nine, number nine, number nine. And then she heard the beginning of the collage of music and snippets of dialogue and bits from the news and chants at a sports game and um, all of this stuff. And I could tell by her face that she realized that this wasn't a song in the, in the sense that she knew it. She knew that it was something other than a song. And her brow was sort of furrowing and she was had a weird look on her face. And so she was trying to figure out what exactly it was if it wasn't a song. Because it had pieces of music in it. It had pieces of people singing and people talking in it. It was rhythmic in a way, in little bits and pieces. And then she started laughing. And then she kept laughing. And she wouldn't stop laughing. She's just cackling in the back seat of the car where I'm recording this right now. And she thought it was just the silliest and dumbest thing she'd ever heard. And she just started, she just kept laughing, saying, what is this? What is this? And um, what, what I took away from that was the lesson of uh, expectations. If you have the expectation that this is music that a cult used in the desert in the late 60s to, as an excuse or as a command to go and uh, commit some atrocious murders, or if you even just um, have your Catholic upbringing with the Book of Revelation in mind, I think of that scene in Ghostbusters where they're driving across the Brooklyn Bridge and... Um, it gets very serious, and uh, Dan Aykroyd's character quotes the book of Revelation. If you have all of that in your mind and uh, have an active imagination that wants to do something with it, um, you can scare the hell out of yourself if you're 13, 14, 15, or 16. If you're four years old and uh, don't have all of that baggage and it's just completely new to you, uh, it's something else entirely. It is just hilarious. And even now, if I start to play it and it comes on, she just says, turn this off. This is silly. Basically, that is it. So I thought that was a nice uh, lesson as well. And the last lesson that I will uh, leave you with tonight, probably a, this will take a little longer to talk about, um, I, talk, I spoke a few weeks ago about uh, Joan Didion and how her book, how the book she wrote after the death of her husband had its way of uh, infuriating me and of infuriating others because she just sounds like a, a literary snob or just a rich snob uh, talking about all the people she knows and all the money she has and all the privilege and access she has because of all the money that she has. Um, that all of that is buried in the middle of a, an extremely beautiful book, mourning over the death of her husband. And I started to read uh, another book this week, and it is called uh, Kaddish by uh, Leon Wieseltier. 
and it is just a book about uh, Leanne Weaseltier's father dying in the mid '90s, and uh, and his son uh, taking on the duty of saying Kaddish for him every day for a year, as you're supposed to do, and during that year he looks into the history of this prayer that uh, Jewish, at this time, sons uh, were obligated to say uh, after the deaths of their fathers or mothers or parents or anybody that there were, anybody in their families, direct families that they were close to. And Joan Didion's book was maybe 200 pages. Uh, Leon Wieseltier's book is almost 600. But they're, in a way, the same kind of book. They're, uh, Leon Wieseltier is mourning the death of his father and talking about the year after following the death of his father. Joan Didion's book, A Year of Magical Thinking, is about the year after her husband died. Uh, Joan Didion it was a uh, was famous in literary circles, famous enough to be able to live in Manhattan. Both she and her husband were well-known writers, so they could afford to do that. Leanne Wieseltier, in the mid uh, in the mid '90s, anyway, was the literary editor at the New Republic. And if anyone looks up Leanne Wieseltier these days, uh, you will see that he uh, was taken down with. Uh, with many others after the Me Too stuff in 2017 and 2018. He seems to have been doing a bit more than just uh, editing the literary pages of the New Republic, and uh, by all accounts seems to have been uh, uh, a fairly gross guy, but this book is still uh, astonishing, and I've learned a great deal from it. And one of the things I've learned from it is that uh, what one person takes to be snobbishness or what one person uh, reads in Joan Didion and has their their jealousy flare up, in a book by Leon Wieseltier, almost the same thing uh, is written about, but I don't feel jealous of him at all. I just want to give an example of this. Um, the example I used, uh, one of the many examples I used from Joan Didion, was that um, she couldn't write about being in Los Angeles without name-dropping restaurants or politicians or movie stars or other writers she knew. And she would mention them by their first name as if everybody should know them. Uh, she would say things like, uh, my husband and I got to see a basketball game and the tickets came straight from... Uh, the NBA commissioner, or she would just talk about my husband's editor at Random House, right? Something like that. Uh, Leon Wieseltier begins one of his uh, sections in his book. Uh, I should say it is basically a notebook. It's just fragments of reading through uh, thousands of pages of uh, Jewish history, Talmud, uh, rabbinical commentaries, commentaries to commentaries, um, the whole gamut of stuff from basically uh, the first or second century forward until now, but a lot of, most of it is centered in the Middle Ages. Um, and he just says this offhand at one point. Uh, 
Mordecai attributes Rabbi F. Tariki's remark to a 5th century collection of rabbinical homilies for the holidays. I have the critical edition of this text, and in parentheses he adds, I knew the editor when I was a boy. And I realized that if Joan Didion had said that, or indeed she did say her version of that in her book, and that flares up the jealousy in somebody like me. Leanne Wieseltier says this in his book, and there's no jealousy at all. And why? Why is that? I had to ask myself why. And that is because uh, Joan Didion's world is the literary world. Uh, it's the world that I've been trying to break into for 30 years now and have not done so. And it's the world where I've been shown on, uh, depending on how often I look at book review pages, on a daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly basis, that there definitely does seem to be certain doors and certain entryways um, that I will never gain access to but that others always will find an easier way into than I ever will. Uh, but Leon Wieseltier's world is not that, even though he is the literary editor, uh, or was the literary editor of the New Republic. Uh, in this book, that is not what he is about. So that when you say, in parentheses, I knew the editor when I was a boy, what you're saying and what you're adding to is an entire book that is about nothing but tradition, the tradition of Jewish commentary on the Hebrew Bible and on the Talmud and the Mishnah and all the great uh, medieval commentators like Rashi or Maimonides or all these other folks. Um, it's not something, it's, it is something that you could be made jealous of but that's not the point of why you would say it. You would mention it to say, I knew this person, who knew this person, who knew this person. Um, it's all about a lineage of knowledge rather than a, a lineage of merely name dropping, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I just wanted to share a few passages from the book to give a sense of, of what this is, because it is a quite a beautiful book. Very early on in the book, he quotes the medieval commentator Nachmanides, who wants to understand mourning and wants to understand death. And he, uh, Nachmanides says, I want now to say what my heart believes and what my mind has proven about these things. And he begins with a perplexity, Leon Wieseltier says, and this, this is quoting Nachmanides. Uh, Since man is destined to die and deserves to lie down in the shadow of death, why should we torture ourselves over somebody's death and weep for the dead and bemoan him? After all, the living know that they will die. It is puzzling that those who know what will come to pass should then mourn and then call others to lamentation. And so Leon Wieseltier's book is about Kaddish, the Kaddish, uh, the mourner's Kaddish, and uh, he's trying to figure out when this prayer first appeared in the Jewish liturgy. And his response to Nachmanides is this. Nachmanides is describing a collision of the heart and the mind. 
No wonder he began with what my heart believes and what my mind has proven. He is suggesting that what one knows must have an effect upon what one feels. This seems perfectly true. Did I expect my father not to die? Of course not. But still I wail. What good is philosophy if there is pain? What good is philosophy if there is pain? And about 10 pages later, he says this. Uh, years ago, when I stopped praying, the disappearance of the religious structure seemed to bring with it the promise of possibility. Every day it would begin differently, the adventure of self-creation. But really, was every day begun differently? I did not create myself. I merely acceded to other platitudes and other habits. It is not only religion that lives by repetition. And I would say there that that is one of the reasons uh, why I became Jewish and perhaps why I just discovered that I was had been Jewish all the time. Um, it really is that, that realization that uh, it is the habits of prayer and study that are it and that uh, for me, anyhow, that is what I need to. That is what I need to anchor me uh, on a daily basis. And here we are. And I would rather choose the repetition of prayer than the repetition of the newspaper or of the morning news or of whatever it is. Um, a few pages later, he is talking about going to uh, going to the synagogue to say the evening prayers as he, uh, as he feels himself obligated to do. And he says this, A shiny, breezy evening. Just as the prayers are starting, a troop of chubby, bratty boys from a yeshiva on the Jersey shore saunters in. The dust of a summer's day is upon them. I find myself a little annoyed at their rowdiness and a little embarrassed at my annoyance. When I was a boy, I didn't like those old men who cared about nothing more than decorum. But then it comes time for them to say amen, and they sing it out again and again. And with every little chorus I melt, it is almost impossible to think unsentimentally about continuity. And that is the clue, at least for me, why I think that uh, Wieseltier's book, which has been badly reviewed in, by some people as being pompous and self-absorbed and self-involved, what saves it from being that for me, or, or from igniting the jealousy that Joan Didion's book did, is what Wieseltier says about continuity. It's a different kind of continuity. It isn't the New York publishing world continuity. It is the continuity of a uh, of a religion, of a way of life, and yes, and so in the middle of his studies, he's he's living in Washington D.C. at the time. Uh, Wieseltier says at one point, Washington is less real to me than Worms, the German city where a lot of uh, Protestant stuff happened, but also a lot of uh, uh, medieval Jewish scholarship as well. Washington is less real to me 
Ben Vorms. He's reading uh, books by Eliezer Ben Judah of Vorms, a uh, medieval Jewish pietist. And I think I've said the same thing where, uh, where Yeats says something about how the Battle of Troy is more uh, active in his imagination than the daily paper and that kind of thing. Um, that just comes up uh, naturally. And, and here we are again. This is another way of talking about continuity. Um, without tradition, he says, without tradition, a revelation is merely an epiphany, and it can inspire nothing more than art. And later on, in connection with the idea of the epiphany, he says this. The ideal of the epiphany, the thirst for what Americans call peak experiences, all this is a little cowardly, an attempt to escape the consequences of living in time. Of course, the epiphany may arrive, but after the epiphany, there will arrive the moment after the epiphany. The peak experience will peak, and there will occur, in the most quotidian way, an experience of eschatological disappointment. Epiphany is one way of attacking our temporality. Ritual is another. Epiphany is more vulnerable to time's counterattack than ritual. But who would think who would not exchange ritual for epiphany, or so I used to think. Customs have reasons, but the reasons are not their only reason. They exist also because they have existed. Time is an essential ingredient of a custom. Every custom shows the smudge of time. That is why customs seem so opaque, yet they owe their beauty in part to their opacity. They are like one of those Indian statues, one of those Hindu or Buddhist statues, whose features have been blurred by the touch of hands over centuries. What they lose in definition, they gain in devotion. And I think that is the clue into why I see myth and religion and the study of scripture of whatever kind and the... Uh, the participation in rituals of any kind as being the thing I gravitated to more than the merely literary. As he says, without tradition, a revelation is merely an epiphany. It can inspire nothing more than art. Now, art can be astonishing. Art can be amazing. Art can prop up your entire life. Art can save lives. But next to tradition in the way that he is talking about it, next to customs that, uh, that are held on to because they exist. They exist because they have existed. They have gone on. They have also uh, supported not just individuals in their own minds, but entire cultures, entire civilizations. Uh, that is something else entirely, and that is something that even someone that I revere so much as T.S. Eliot or Walt Whitman um, cannot touch, at least for me. And uh, it is probably my mistake that I have been trying to fit those people into uh, that kind of a mold.
I should say that one of the reasons, and I'll probably devote an entire episode to this, one of the reasons I that I converted to Judaism came about because of an anecdote about a custom. Now there is a there is a custom of welcoming in the new the the new moon every month, Rosh Hodesh, and for centuries, uh, because of the vagaries of uh, ancient astronomy and the spread, the diaspora of the Jewish people, uh, Rosh Hodesh was celebrated over the course of two days. That allowed you to make sure that you really covered and celebrated on the day that the, that the new moon appeared, but it also allowed for, uh, for people who were announcing it to go to the far-flung places. So you would celebrate it for two days. Once it became, and I believe this was in the seventh or the eighth century, um, once it became obvious, once it became clear that uh, once the study of the stars became uh, accurate enough to where the second day was no longer needed, to where all you needed to really do was train people to look at the stars and count the calendar, and you could almost certainly, you could precisely tell when uh, when the new moon was there and you could celebrate. Um, the question became, do we get rid of the second day? There's technically, reasonably, uh, no need for it anymore. Um, and the answer, and this is what uh, propelled me into Judaism, the answer is a completely remarkable one. Uh, the custom has been in place for so long that you should continue to keep it. You should continue to observe it. And uh, that is what we do now um, in our own house. We do it for two days. And there is the recognition that uh, there is there is tradition, and sometimes tradition trumps actual knowledge, you might say. Um, and in a way, tradition trumps everything. Um, as I've been told many times, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible does not mean what the Hebrew Bible says. It means what the rabbis say it says. It means what... Uh, uh, it means what, it means the meaning that is brought out today or tomorrow or last week or last year. Uh, as long as you are keeping your foot in the tradition, you can continue to grow in other ways. Now I've gone on, on a bit and I usually don't talk too much about religion here because it seems to turn people off. Um, but I wanted to get all of that in tonight. And for some reason, those were the stories that came up. And so I will leave you with that for now. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. 
If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.